We're continuing our Acts series today, and it's my pleasure to read the scriptures for us. Our scripture today comes from Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Hear now the reading of God's word. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is God's word. Uh, Please now give your attention to the preaching of God's word. Pastor Dinko, uh, my name is also Dan. I am the Fullerton campus pastor, which means I'm the guy that Dinko's breaking up with when he goes in church plant. So, um, no, I'm so excited for the church plant. I'm praying for the plant, rooting for the plant. Uh, can't wait to see what God is going to do through you all here. Before I preach the word, which is my privilege, please join me in a word of prayer. Father God, As we open up your word, we need your help. And so, Holy Spirit, would you guide us to the truth, apply it to our lives, change our hearts, give us your heart, exchange hearts of stone for hearts of flesh this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you heard of the Great Commission? That's the question that Barna Research asked churchgoers back in 2018, and I was shocked by the results. 51% of churchgoers said they never heard of and did not know what the Great Commission was. Only 17% of churchgoers said they knew what it was. And when I heard that, I was in disbelief. Could that be possible that 51% of churchgoers have no idea what the Great Commission is? And then I was in denial and I thought, is it possible that 51% of Christ Central doesn't know what the Great Commission is? I don't know. We've never polled our congregation and we probably won't. But I'm going to be preaching on the Great Commission today. And so that covers all of our bases that you'll at least today have heard of it and know what it is. But I'm preaching on it not just so that we can be ahead of the polls, but I believe that Scripture teaches us that every believer... Every belie- if you're a believer, every single one of you should be greatly interested and involved in and invested in the work of the Great Commission. If you are not yet interested, involved in, or invested in the work of the Great Commission, I hope that at least by the end of this sermon, you'll take a couple steps in that direction, and you'll see why you are called, commanded, to be invested in the Great Commission So the first point this morning, every believer should have great interest in the Great Commission. Here's the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. A commission is a task or an assignment. And so this is the task that Jesus assigned the disciples, to go and make disciples of all nations by teaching and baptizing and 
They would do that by planting churches in different cities all over the Mediterranean, at least in that first century. And then those churches in those regions would go and reach the people in their communities, which is a big reason why the impetus behind planting the Artesia church. That is the assignment. Why is it called great? It's called great for two reasons. First, it is great in scope. We're called to reach the nations, all people groups. Secondly, it is great because of the significance of what it is that we are doing. Is there anything more important in life than where you will spend everlasting life? What you're doing tomorrow, where you'll be working next year or after graduation, where you're going to go on vacation in a couple years, where you're going to live, that all pales in comparison where you're going to spend eternity. This is why the Great Commission is significant. The Bible presents two options. There's heaven and there's a hell. Both are everlasting. One is eternal joy and blessedness in the presence of the heavenly Father. The other is eternal condemnation and wrath and punishment spent away from the Father in hell for eternity. The gospel says that there is only one way people are saved, and that is by repenting, saying, I am a sinner and I cannot save myself. I am not good innately, but there is one who was perfect, and that's Jesus Christ. And I repent of my sins, place my faith in him and what he has done in his death on the cross and resurrection. And by God's free grace, we are saved. I know you've heard that before, but may I remind us today, that is the most important thing in life. I know you've got a lot of stuff going on in life, a lot of major things, really important things. But may I give you that gospel eternal perspective right now? This is the most important thing, not only for you, but for your family, your loved ones, and everyone in this world. It is a great commission. It is a daunting task, I'll admit that. Jesus calls his disciples to share the gospel among all of the nations. But he doesn't leave them empty-handed. He sends them the Holy Spirit to gift and empower the church to obey this big task. If you look at the book of Acts, or 28 chapters, and the outline of the book of Acts is their obedience to the Great Commission. They begin in Jerusalem, and then they go to Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Here in Acts chapter 13, we see the very first mission's journey. Paul and Barnabas are sent. Who sends them? If you look at the text that we just read, you could get the impression that it's just the prophets and teachers because they're listed there, or it's just those, those guys that are listed who are interested in, that they were the only ones who were worshiping or fasting and praying and sending Paul and Barnabas off. However, if we look at the text that we just read, that they, commentators say, that they is the entire church, not just those men who are listed, not just the prophets and teachers. The entire church was participating in the worship, the prayer, and the fasting, and the laying on of hands, and the sending. It's not just the elders, or the officers, or our missions committee, or the pastors who are interested in missions. Every believer we see in this early church was involved, and that still applies today. 
At the end of chapter 14, when Paul and Barnabas returned from their first missionary journey six months later, it says the entire church was gathered there as well to receive them, to hear their report, to pray for them, to care for them. And that's the challenge for all of us here today, for Christ Central. It's not leaving it to somebody else that you today would begin taking steps, whatever that looks like, and we'll have some practical applications later to be more involved in missions individually, in your marriage, in your families, the way that you raise your children. The entire church was involved in making disciples. And I do want to take a moment to clarify what we mean by making disciples. What we're not talking about is forced conversion or imposing your beliefs on others. We actually, biblically speaking, can't make anyone believe in Jesus. All we can do is faithfully, lovingly, patiently, prayerfully share the gospel with others, and ultimately it is up to God and the work of the Holy Spirit to open up their hearts and draw them to faith in Christ. And I say that because... It's important we understand that the Great Commission isn't a form of religious colonialism or forced conversion or twisted into some kind of religious conquest, which it has throughout Christian history, and we lament that. Looking back, we don't deny that that has happened, but we do denounce that that is a perversion of what Jesus intended the Great Commission to be. Rightly and biblically understood, actually, the Great Commission is the opposite of conquest. It's the opposite of any kind of colonialism. It's actually freedom. That when we share the gospel with people, we're not trying to control them. We're actually liberating them. The gospel offers freedom and liberation from what? From the power and the condemnation of sin. The gospel offers power from what? The enslaving power of sin. The gospel offers freedom from trying to build your life on top of a pile of temporary thing. It liberates you from trying to find your worth and validation in the opinions of others or being swept away by the latest worldview and always trying to keep up. It is freedom and liberation and the source of the greatest joy and happiness and blessedness so that when we present the gospel to people, what we're really asking them is, do you want to be happy? Do you want to have joy and blessedness? It doesn't matter where you go in this world. Any nation, any tribe, everyone wants to be happy. And we who know Christ know the source of true, eternal blessedness and joy. It's also important to note that the Great Commission is not intolerance. I don't know about you, but... I feel like these days the definition of tolerance has taken on a new meaning. It used to mean respectfully disagreeing with other people, and these days it just sounds like you have to affirm and accept anything and and everything. Because of this new definition of tolerance these days, younger generation of believers in the church are actually very squeamish about the Great Commission. They're very squeamish about talking about like conversion or using the word convert or making disciples. They're fearful, and I understand that. Maybe you feel that way as well. But it is important to note, at the end of the day, 
when we share the gospel, whatever it is you call it, sharing your faith, making disciples, going to butt heads with people, that's nothing new. That's not a new thing. When Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey, they were opposed. They were persecuted. Paul in Lystra, he was stoned to the point where they thought he was dead, and then they dragged him out of the city. And so if we are opposed today, just know that that is nothing new. Jesus knew that. He predicted it, that if the world hated him, and if you are faithful in following him, they're going to hate you too. I understand why we are squeamish, but it's important to understand that that is nothing new, and we need to prayerfully and in faith move forward. It does make it challenging, however, but the Bible never promises easy conditions in obeying the Great Commission. The fact that missions is actually really hard and may invite persecution and suffering, it's one reason why data shows younger believers, late millennials, Gen Z, are not very interested in missions. And I don't blame them. Gen Z, they grew up with 9-11, the 2008 recession, war on terrorism, what appears to be maybe a possible recession looming, and also the pandemic. When asked, Gen Z says that their highest value in life is stability. When I hear that, it makes me wonder, what is missions going to look like 5, 10 years from now? What's missions going to look like 10, 20 years from now? When their highest value is stability and there's so much fear of instability and there's a lot of scary things out there in this world, will there be missionaries? Will we, will we be really thin on sending missionaries to the field and to the nations? I don't know the answer. But I think this is timely for us to be aware of that today so that we can all together, whatever generation you are, recommit or commit for the first time to missions. We can't control what other churches do, but you present here at the Artesia campus have a say in your involvement here, that this can be a missions-sending church, an evangelistic church, beginning here in this area in Artesia and also for the nations. How do we remain? It seems like it's such an uphill climb that the odds are against us. Like I said, it's not going to be easy. How do we remain committed to the Great Commission? How do we even elevate our passion for the Great Commission? There is no silver bullet. There are no tricks. I believe God has given us what we need, and we see it in this passage to fan into flame our passion for great, the Great Commission, even among the younger generations, we see three things. They were worshiping, they were fasting, they were praying, they were sending, and they were going. Actually, it's four things, sorry. And the next point is this. These are the mission's catalysts. Prayer, fasting, sending and going, and worship. It's in the context in this passage. They were worshiping. It's like they were at church, worshiping praying, fasting together. And that is the context in which the Holy Spirit spoke to them and called out Saul and Barnabas or Paul and Barnabas and the church sent them on their first missionary journey. So it's nothing new. 
And I believe that when we commit ourselves to worship, prayer, and even fasting, which is fallen out of favor these days and not very popular in terms of spiritual disciplines. When we commit ourselves to those, I believe that is where the Holy Spirit will move us towards missions. If we look at Acts 13, 2-3, we see worshiping, fasting, then fasting again, and then they were praying. And we're going to look at the first two, prayer and fasting. We're going to look at these together because they are often paired together throughout Scripture There are a lot of different purposes for prayer and also for fasting, but I believe that in this text, we see a particular purpose for them. Prayer is to discern God's way. Fasting is to desire God's way. And if we combine them together, prayer plus fasting, it's to seek God's will and to surrender to God's will. The church in Antioch, they prayed. And we're like, of course, they're a church. Of course they pray. They're praying for God's will. This is really important. They had prophets and teachers. It mentions it in the chapter. Paul and Barnabas were also there. And you would think, well, don't they already know God's will? I mean, they're like these big leaders, spiritual leaders in the church. And yet they prayed. They had the humility to pray and to ask God. Why is it so important? Because so many of us here, we've already made up our minds. We've already made up our minds what we want our lives to look like, what we want our marriages to look like, where we want to live, how we're going to raise our children, where they're going to go to school, what they're going to do when they grow up. We've already made up our minds. And along the way, we forgot to ask God, God, what do you want? What do you want? And it's not to say the things you desire and want are bad or sinful things. But is it specifically what God wants for your life, for your marriage, for your children, for your finances? If the apostles, these prophets, these teachers, they prayed and said, God, they could probably guess what God wants and have a really good idea. And yet they prayed and they asked, would you begin praying that prayer? Say, God, what do you want? You probably made a lot of plans for 2023. Is it what God wants? Not only did they pray, but they fasted. And this is really important because knowing God's will is one thing, and then surrendering, submitting to it is a whole other story. Because if God tells you this is what I want and you don't like it, are you going to obey or not? So they fasted. Fasting is a way of us Breaking down our will to get to a point where we can say, Father God, your will be done and not mine. I want your way and not my way. It's so important that we fast. I want to even challenge you. Would you consider fasting? Setting apart a time to abstain from food, to focus on prayer, and God's will, and what he wants for you. And I believe God is faithful, and he sees how you long to know his will and to do his will. And I believe God is faithful in speaking to us in those moments. And it's through fasting that we're able to let go and release everything that we're holding so tightly to and say, God, your way is better. And if this is pleasing to you, 
and glorifying to you. Although it may mean less of this for me and pain for me, your will be done, Father God, because it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I was bought with a price. I am no longer my own. I belong to Jesus, and everything I have belongs to Jesus. Darren Carlson, he's the founder and president of an organization that trains international Christian leaders. And he says that in his experience, the greatest hurdle that most missionaries face are parents. He says that many Christian parents, they say they want whatever God wants for their children, but as long as it's on their own terms. He says, in his experience, parents are the greatest hurdle. And he has to gently remind parents, your children are not your own. They're God's gift to you. And you are a steward as a parent. You are responsible to raise this child that God has given you in the faith as a disciple and follower of Christ. To raise them to know that we are called to reach the nations and be open to the possibility that God may call them to missions and to not oppose that, but to pray and to support them in that endeavor. I'm not saying that every one of your children are going to be called to missions far. That's far from the truth. But parents, when they're faithfully raising their children, they're open to it, committed to it, and will be willing to send them off if that day comes or God's call comes. And again, this is where fasting comes into play because we hold on so much to our wills, our ways, the way that we want things and our plans that it can interfere or never intersect with God's great task and assignment for us to reach those who have yet to hear of Christ. Fasting teaches us to surrender and there's so much for us to surrender. It teaches us to pray, not on my terms, but your terms. Not the way I want my life, but the way that you want my life. It's especially difficult for us to surrender when worldly, material, temporary things eclipse spiritual things. The believers in Antioch, they could have easily lost sight of spiritual things. Why do I say that? At this time, the city of Antioch was the third largest in the Roman Empire. They were wealthy. They were in the center of many trade routes. They also had a reputation for being a place of perpetual vice in terms of morality. They were also deeply corrupt. But they also had a lot of entertainment, theaters, and circuses. They had a lot of shopping, colonnades with wide walkways, and a two-mile-long street that was just lined with shops and it was marble paved. The believers in Antioch, they're there because they fled persecution in Jerusalem. And so imagine you just fled persecution and suffering. You're in this city of Antioch. It's pretty nice. And they're just like, you know what? What if they said, let's just take it easy for a little bit. It's been pretty intense lately. And it's kind of nice here in Antioch. Can we just relax for a few months, for a few years? how easily they could have been sidetracked 
and distracted. But what we see is that, no, they prayed and they fasted. Why? Because I believe they needed to. They needed to. It would have been so easy to take their foot off the gas and forget the great assignment and the great task. And I believe the same applies to us today. It's so easy to be distracted with what this world has to offer and what we see. There's another reason why I believe fasting is essential to missions. I read an article, and I don't know if you know this as well, but they said that there are way more women on missions than men. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I kind of didn't believe it at first, and so I had a fact check, and it's true. Two-thirds of missionaries, overseas missionaries, are married couples. Of the remaining one-third, 80 to 85% of them are single women. And so what gives? Why is that? We don't have any hard data on the reason why, and so different pastors, theologians will speculate. Some point to the fact that statistically, and this is true, women are more devout and committed to faith than men. This is just based on polls and church attendance. Others point maybe to social pressure that men feel like they need to pursue different kinds of careers. But I thought this one was really interesting. When one church planner was asked, what's the reason for the discrepancy and growing disproportion of women on missions, he gave an answer that took me back at first, but the more I thought about it, I'm like, that could make sense. He said pornography. I thought, really? Pornography is not exclusively something men struggle with, but it is something men struggle with disproportionately compared to women, even in the church. And it's alarming what statistics show about the number of men who regularly view or are addicted to pornography. And it makes sense why. Pornography is this kind of sin that not only is addictive, but it has such a stronghold on so many men's lives, this vice-like grip. And it's strangling them spiritually. That if there is someone who is so enslaved to sin, we should not expect that they have holy ambitions and holy desires. This church planter says that Pornography deconditions men for missions or for ministry for a few reasons. The drive of pornography is lust, but the drive of missions is love. The drive of pornography is self-gratification, whereas the drive of missions is self-sacrifice. The drive of pornography is immediate gratification, whereas missions requires men and women to endure, to be faithful, to suffer. And because of that, those who are enslaved to, addicted to, regularly viewing pornography are deconditioned to love the way that God wants us to love, unable to self-sacrifice because they don't know what that means. And because they're so used to immediate gratification, they don't know how to endure, to be faithful and I thought, that may make sense. And again, this is where fasting comes into play. 
Fasting is a spiritual weapon. Fasting and prayer to put sin to death, to mortify it. And brothers or sisters here, if this is something you wrestle with, the first thing I want you to know is that there is forgiveness and full and free grace and mercy from God if you would repent. But I also want to give you an additional motivator as to why you should strive with all of your might, maybe even fast, and asking for the Spirit's help for you to put this sin to death. Another motivator is so that you would have holy ambitions for the sake of the Great Commission. So that you would have holy ambitions so that God would begin using your body and your mind to bear good fruit rather than fruit of unrighteousness. So that you would find actually greater joy and satisfaction in loving and self-sacrifice and enduring. I believe you will find greater joy, satisfaction, and blessedness in being used by God. The church needs you. The Great Commission needs you. And I believe Satan has used pornography as a tool to turn many men away from gospel ministry and from the Great Commission. Fasting is a way of recovering holy desires. The last way Sorry, the second to last way that they committed to the Great Commission is by sending and going. This is the most obvious. This is how they obeyed God's way. It says in verse 3, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. What does it mean to send? Because we want to send well. Sending doesn't mean you drop them off at the airport and say, bye, good luck, we'll see you in a year. In 3 John, the elder named Gaius, he is commended for his hospitality and care of missionaries. And that word send used in 3 John means to fully equip someone for a journey, which means if we're going to send well, it requires resources on our end to equip them with everything that they need so that they are set up for gospel success to the best of our ability, and the rest is up to the Spirit of God. But we're going to give, we're going to sacrifice for the nations. And then we receive them back well. That's part of sending is also the flip side, receiving. In Acts 14, at the end, it says the entire church gathered together to receive Paul and Barnabas, and they listened to their report. I can't tell you how important it is for me to listen to missionaries, their stories, their hardships, setbacks, victories, blessings, and challenges. I need to hear directly from them. It's not enough for me to hear just some pastor preaching about missions. Because when I hear directly from missionaries, that's when my heart is stirred for missions. And I believe that's what they did here. So I actually encourage you practically, support missionaries, whether through our church or a mission-sending organization. Would you consider setting aside finances, subscribing to missionaries' newsletters, and actually reading them when you receive them? Maybe reading it with your spouse, your friends, reading it with your children and then praying over them. They always include prayer requests because they need your prayer. And that is how we grow our heart for missions. The second way and the most obvious way we obey the Great Commission <clears throat> is to go. And I want to encourage and challenge you as well. Would you consider going? Have you ever considered going? 
It doesn't mean you have to be a career lifelong missionary. There are so many opportunities out there and so many needs. It could be a week long, a month, six months, a year. You can check out missiontotheworld.org, their page, and browse through many of their missions opportunities. You might be surprised that you'll find something within your skill set, within your interests and availability. They need so many different kinds of people. Teachers, businessmen and women, doctors, nurses, speech pathologists, administrators, those in the arts, music, and media fields. So if there is a day, maybe this week, and you're just kind of like waiting in line, not much to do, sitting in your car, actually don't look at your phone while you're in your car, um, check out the website. And I believe and maybe God may call you to explore the possibility, maybe I'll go. God can use someone like me. Don't disqualify yourself in advance. There is no perfect missionary. We are all saved by God's grace, gifted by the work of the Spirit. And now let me tell you this. As a church, if you decide to go, we would love to support you as well, pray for you, send you off, and receive you. The last way, and maybe the most important way, we commit to the Great Commission, grow in our passion is by worshiping. That's what they did in Acts 13. They were just worshiping. They were at church worshiping, and then God moved them towards missions. We worship because God, he made a way. He made a way. The word missions, it's taken from the Latin word missio, which means act of sending. And prior to the 16th century, that word missions did not apply to what we know as missions today, sending missionaries overseas. Prior to the 16th century, theologians only used the word missions to talk about God and the Trinity and what God does. Missions was about God sending his son on a mission. And then God the Father and the Son sending the Holy Spirit on a mission. And so if we're going to properly understand and be motivated for missions, it begins with understanding what God has done first, the very first mission. It begins with understanding who God sent so that we could hear good news and be saved. So that we would know the distance Jesus crossed first before we're like, man, that's so far away to know the distance Jesus crossed, which was not a geographic distance, but an ontological distance, that Jesus, who is the very word of God, took on flesh, dwelt among humanity, sinful humanity, and was obedient even to the point of death on a cross that we might be saved. If we think missions is hard, and it is hard, Jesus, who was first sent on missions, suffered the most, taking upon himself and bearing our sin, all of our mess-ups and mistakes and shameful history on the cross so that we would be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, accepted by God our Father in heaven, no fear of condemnation. That was the very first mission. That's what Christmas is about, isn't it? Christmas is right around the corner. You can't get excited about Christmas. You can't love Christmas as a believer without loving missions or caring about the Great Commission. Because Christmas is all about missions. John Piper is right. He says, 
that Christmas mirrors missions and missions mirrors Christmas. Jesus was sent, 1 John 4, 9. In this, this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Brothers and sisters, we send because God sent. We go because Jesus went. That's what the gospel looks like. And we would have no hope Jesus was never sent. If he never went, we would be left to ourselves dead in our sin. And in the same way, there are millions, billions of people out there who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And if we don't go, if we don't send, Paul is clear in Romans 10, they can't believe. They can't know. Christmas is all about the Father sending the Son. And so we don't get excited about missions by talking about missions. That's not how it works, actually. We get excited about missions by talking about the gospel first. The passion for missions comes from knowing the good news that Jesus, who being equal with God, emptied himself and humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, dying on a cross that we might be saved. Growing in the gospel, that is what leads to going to share the gospel with others. It's singing about the gospel that leads to sending others to share the gospel. I'm going to close in prayer, and afterwards we're going to sing a song. I chose this song because it speaks about everything we have gained because God sent his son. Everything we have gained because Jesus went. And I pray it will be that gospel reminder that moves you individually as a married couple and family and also us as a church to commit, recommit to the Great Commission. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for sending Jesus, your one and only beloved son. Thank you for being a father that was willing to let him go. Teach us to follow in your footsteps. Jesus, thank you for being willing to leave your father's side and dying and being obedient so that we could receive grace upon grace. We long for the nations to know this grace. Use us, Christ Central, use our families, finances, energy, and gifts to that end. I pray this in Jesus' name.